If you've been around for the last several weeks, you know we're talking about calling. And we've been trying to carefully make sure that when we talk about calling, we're not jumping right into trying to figure out what state you're supposed to live in or what country or who you're supposed to marry or what job you're supposed to do during the waking hours. Even though all of those things are part of one's individual calling, we've been speaking more broadly about this idea that God calls us into fellowship with himself. And when he makes a claim on us, then that is determinative for everything else. That part of calling, that thing that he does where he takes somebody who was not interested in him, and then because of his interest in them, makes them come alive and makes them want him who wanted them first, which I'm assuming a lot of you are in that category. You're people who at least want to want God. You want his ways. You want to know more about him. You want to have more of him in your life. That's because you've been called. Called by God. Called alive. Called into relationship with him. And Oz Guinness would say, the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are and everything we do and everything we have is now invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out as a response to his summons and his service. The totality of who we are in response to God wanting us and enlisting us in his service is meant to be a response to him. And so before we can get to any of the particulars of figuring that out for your life, you've got to have this big picture thing in your head. And that's what we're talking about even today, although we're going to get a little more particular, which I hope will be helpful. Now, one of the things that happens when you get serious about Jesus and you get serious about the Bible is that you might start, say, reading it, the Bible. And when you read it and you read the Gospels, for instance, some of the times you'll learn and figure out that Jesus says things that make you start to believe, and then it is ratified by voices you hear, extreme voices, people calling you to radicalism, that maybe if I'm going to really follow Jesus, I have to live in a constant state of emergency. Right? If I was just to throw off everything and follow him, does that mean I can't have a house? Does that mean there ain't no possible way that Jesus could want me to work in an 8 to 5 situation at a job where I get a paycheck every two weeks? It's very easy to assume we listen to some of what Jesus, Jesus says and we act as if the first century is exactly like ours. It's easy to assume that some of the things Jesus says means that all of us are called to itinerancy. And you might know people who are extremely zealous and who can only envision that the call to follow Jesus is a call to being weird. A call to be in staunch opposition and rejection to everything normal. Well, I'm trying to address that today because I think that's part of what the Apostle Paul addresses here. There's a danger for every spiritually earnest person to become more spiritual than God. 
to get more earnest about your faith than God means you to be, or at least leads you to applications that where you're self-deceived and they're not at all what God wants for you. My professor Reggie Kidd said, I realized early on, and this is such a helpful thing to figure out, I realized early on that Jesus does call people to follow him. Of course, you know this. The summons of Jesus is on every life in here. Follow me. Make me the center. Live directed by me. But it's easy to assume that since he says follow, that means everyone follows by leaving. That means everyone follows by heading to some state of tumultuousness. Because that's the only real way to exercise faith. Didn't Jesus himself say, if you want to follow me, you must leave everything, take up your cross, follow me? you got to hate your own mama and your daddy. But see, we don't often hear the voices of Jesus saying to, say, a healed demoniac. Maybe some of you are healed demoniacs this morning. Where you say to Jesus, 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 you've done such amazing things for me, can I follow you? And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. No, sir. I don't want you in my... No, he doesn't say that. He says, no, you go back home. And tell everybody how much good the Lord has done for you. Some people are called to follow by leaving. Most people, if you look at the history of the world and you look at the scriptures and most of the experiences I've seen, most people are not called to leave. Most people are called to stay put. The Corinthians had questions about that. They had questions. What happens in our social circumstances, in our marital status, in the normal ways that we carry out our life? What happens when Jesus invades that? Should we form a commune? Should we stop being married? Should we stop going to our normal jobs? Should we not be involved in sexual activity? This is why he's addressing these things in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says about the matters you wrote about. And he goes on to describe what happens. What's supposed to happen when Jesus calls you? Doesn't this cataclysmic call in your life change everything? Shouldn't you make drastic changes? And this is what Paul says. That's sort of the moral of the story in the middle of the passage. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. He's saying most people are going to be called to stay put. Most people are going to be called as they're called into fellowship with Jesus to let all the circumstances of their life be called into it with them. You're called to stay put. Many, many people are called to stay put. Each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. Maybe that's not so very clear. So in verse 20, he says the same thing. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. And since he's a good preacher, he repeats himself a third time in seven verses. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of men. Brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. This is what I'm saying. Ordinarily, a lot of us are going to be called to stay put. Now, let me say this at the outset. I should have said this on Wednesday when I preached about God hating divorce at Covenant College. The 
perfect place to speak about marriage to a bunch of unmarried people? I should have said, you know, when I'm saying this, I'm not saying everything there is to be said about it. I'm saying that today. What I'm saying here is not everything there is to be said about it, because when you say one thing, you can't say everything else. So I'm going to say a particular thing, because I think it's what we need to hear. Because I think a lot of you live in a state of restlessness that can easily get baptized as God's will for you, and you have this sinking, nagging feeling that you're somehow not doing God's best. You're somehow not doing what God wants. And it makes you despise your situation. You become a theoretical person who's always imagining there's some place else that you should be serving God. There's some other conditions in which you should enact your calling as a follower of Jesus. And I think that's exactly what Paul's addressing here. And he's saying, no, there ain't. Here are the conditions in which you follow Jesus. The ones that you are in. Where should I follow Jesus? In the conditions that you are in. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. So from the outset, you ought to start to believe that the circumstances that you're in are quite significant. Most people don't like the circumstances that they're in. And if you do happen to like them, you will not in about seven minutes. But the Apostle is saying the circumstances that you're in are significant. They are part of God's calling. They're part of God's activity in your life. And they ought to be regarded as such. The Apostle could say in another place, and the most un-American statement that I've ever heard a religious person make, he said this. He's walking through Athens. He sees all these idols. He's deeply distressed. He goes to the Areopagus. This is Acts chapter 17. And he gives a speech. He says, I can see you people are very religious indeed. And you have even one altar to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that God. The one God. There's actually only one God. He's the God who made heaven and earth and everything in it. And from one man, he made all the nations of the earth. And this is what Paul says. It's so ridiculous. I'm being facetious. He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Can you believe the audacity of that? People are not self-determined. He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Why? So that they might reach out for Him. They might seek Him and perhaps find Him because He's not very far from them. The Apostle Paul could say in a well-meaning place, in overtly intellectual and curious people's hearing, that God has determined the places and the times in which people live. So they're not insignificant. The question more for each of you is, how do I seek God in these situations that I find myself in, instead of, how do I get a better set of circumstances and situations? Proverbs says the same sort of thing. The Lord works out everything for His own ends. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Now, there's some of you, sort of freedom addicts, who are going to hate these words. But they're really meant to be great comfort words. They're meant to say, you know what, the circumstances that you find yourself in are quite significant. They're, maybe you've been placed there. The question in the Corinthian church that started Paul talking about this was, are we 
we, we shouldn't be we should be celibate within our marriages, right? Because God don't like sex. And Paul's like, what the what? Who the huh? He doesn't. That's not a literal translation. But he sets them straight. It's like no, no, don't get more spiritual than God. And then he say, well, so what happens? What happens if I'm married to to, to Jason the pagan, and the, and I'm a woman? Imagine I'm a lovely lady. And, and, and Jesus comes and makes me alive. And all of a sudden, I, my sins are forgiven. And I want to follow Jesus. And Jason the pagan, he ain't into it. Can I divorce him? Or should I leave him? What are we supposed to do? And you know what Paul says? You know, here, let me tell you. If Jason the pagan will live with you, and he can put up with you, then you put up with him. Stay where God has assigned you. Which is instructive to us because if he can tell people in marriages where the situation changed, he doesn't want people to get married who aren't both believers. But if you're not both believers when you get married and one of you gets converted, don't leave. He says, stay where you put. This is where you've been assigned. It's weird. Your circumstances are quite significant. Of course, you know the situation that Mordecai, and some of you have children named Mordecai maybe. You ought to. Mordecai was speaking to Esther who, by God's accident, I guess, happened to be very lovely. And by God's accident, I guess, happened to be in the king's harem at a time when the king had been duped into wanting to kill all the Jews everywhere. And Mordecai says to her, you know the story of Esther, if not, maybe watch the VeggieTales version. Isn't there a VeggieTales version for you? Thank you. <laughs> but you know what he says? He says, hey, you need to go into the king and tell him, stop this business. And she said, do you know what happens when people go into the king unbidden? Their heads have a tendency to fall off. And he says, look, woman, if you don't go into the king and say something, deliverance is going to come somewhere else. God's going to deliver the Jews. He, that's what he does. But who knows? Maybe you have been placed here for such a time as this. Who knows? You know, if you don't know the rest of the story, it was true. She was. She was placed there for such a time as that. And one of the remarkable things that the Bible would have you believe is that the Lord who is sovereignly choreographing all the affairs of men and women and letting their meaningful choices, which are very meaningful and very true, orchestrating them in the circumstances of their lives, that you've been placed where you are for some purpose that God has, even if you don't know what it is. And so Paul can say, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. It starts to change the way you view the circumstances that you're in. And you at least don't just immediately assume they're all wrong. That they're accidental. That something's gone wrong. There's been a, a blip in the universe. And here you are in a place you shouldn't have been at a time you shouldn't have been. You, you went left when God meant to say right. You misheard him. Paul doesn't go into any of that. He just says, stay where you are. If you're uncircumcised, don't get circumcised. Of course, the verse can't have 
And he says, if you're a freed man, well, I mean, if you're a slave, don't worry about it. Slavery in the first century is different than American slavery, which is so evil. If you want to talk about that later, we will, but we're not getting to it now. Paul says each one should remain in the situation they were in when God called him. And so you can be the kind of person who starts to say, like a character in one of Wendell Berry's stories, she always did what the world set before her to do. You can start to say that my circumstances are significant and there are certain things that God has set before me to do. These are the things that I have to give attention to. These are the situations in which I'm in because the circumstances that I'm in are quite significant. They're not an accident. And the next thing is this. You've got to start to see yourself as responsible to God on assignment as a servant. You've got to see yourself as responsible to God on assignment as a servant. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God has called him to. You know Bob Schieffer? Does anyone in here know who Bob Schieffer is? Face the nation. Can someone raise a hand showing me that there is someone who knows something about contemporary cults? Thank you. I don't think anyone under 40 knows who Bob Schieffer is. He's been working with CBS. No, I saw one young college student raise a hand. Hey! There you go. That's over 40 a little bit. Bob Schieffer has been, he faced the nation. He's moderated a presidential, a vice presidential debate or something. He was on the Daily Show the other day with John Stewart. He has, for 40 years, been working for CBS, I think. He is not 17. He's an older fellow. He's seen a lot of stuff. He's a big player in the news world. 40 years ago, his first inauguration... Richard Milhouse Nixon, some of you were alive for this, 1968, or it would have been January 1969, he had been given his first assignment as a young reporter. Anybody who goes to be a reporter in in Washington wants to be in where the action is, where the the power is, where, where the good things are going down. You know what had happened in the Democratic National Convention in 1968? This youth movement, led by folks like Abby Hoffman, they had nominated for president a pig named Pegasus. Not Pegasus, Pegasus. And so on the day when Richard Milhouse Nixon was being inaugurated as the president of the United States, that January 1969, these group of protesters were on the lawn in front of the Washington Monument there to inaugurate Pegasus as president of the United States. A pig. They're inaugurating a pig. Bob Schieffer was given this as his first reporting assignment in Washington. So he goes, it's raining. The pig, well, it's a pig. It gets loose. It's muddy. People are running around trying to catch the pig so that they can inaugurate the pig in this mock protest that probably made all people that weren't on their side very angry. And after the show, Schieffer's mom called him. He's a young man. What were the inaugural balls like? What were the gowns that the women were wearing? Tell me all about it. And he said, Mom, I never got to go inside. I was outside in the rain and the mud with a pig. Because he was on assignment. It was interesting to me to think about that. A reporter being given an assignment. He doesn't get the pick. He just does the assignment that he's been given. And he tries to do that thing faithfully. 
40 years later, he's doing bigger stories than pig inaugurations. But he had to be faithful where he was. He had to start to see himself as responsible on assignment. And that's what Paul's saying. And it's applicable to everybody in here, no matter what your situation is. Whether you're 7 or 77, you are someone who is supposed to realize that you have been given an assignment. Your circumstances that you're in right now are an assignment. And you're responsible to God in them as a servant. That's what servants do. He says, you're the Lord's, if you're a free person, you're the Lord's slave. You're a servant. You've been bought. And now we're Christian people. We know that following Jesus, we're supposed to want to be servants. Servants to everybody. But here's the thing. I think Howard Hendrickson said this. Everybody wants to be called a servant, but nobody wants to be treated like one. Well, there's a lot of you in here right now who don't particularly like the situation you're in because you're being treated like a servant. You're not being noticed. You're having to give a lot and you're not getting a lot back. And Paul says to you, you should remain in the situation that you're called to, that you should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to you. You have to see yourself as responsible to God on assignment as a servant. So many times we would like to do something heroic. We would like it if we could in some blaze of glory do something magnificent for Jesus. And most of us, not everybody, most of us are going to be called in situations where there are no blazes of glory. It's just everyday servant that you see as being assigned to you by God. That's something that's important, that God wanted done, so He placed you there. God cares about your family, so He placed you there. He cares about your bank, so He placed you there. He cares about the school where you are, so He placed you there. He cares about your neighborhood, so He placed you there. He cares about your husband, so He placed you there. He cares about your wife and your children, so He placed you there cared about your friends, so he placed you there. You get the idea? Screwtape says, in Screwtape Letters, the senior devil at one place says, here's what I want you to do. If you really want to have your patient careen off the side and be totally confused about his life and, and be completely derailed in his following of Jesus, never let it occur to him that though he is theoretically committed entirely to service of the enemy, which is Jesus, even though he's theoretically committed to the service of Jesus, don't let it occur to him when he's complaining and resentful about the things he has to do in his life that if Jesus were to show up to him in the morning in bodily form and say, Hey, I want you to make breakfast for those kids today. They're not going to say thank you. It's never even going to cross their minds to ever thank anybody for anything, ever. But I want you to serve them anyway. And I want you to endure the traffic and go to your job where your boss is going to demand too much of you and you're assuming that you're making too little money. But I've assigned you that job. And so I would like you to do it for me. If Jesus appeared in bodily form to any one of us, you know what we would not say? I don't... Nah. 
You would go, yes sir, yes sir, I will, okay? You'd, you'd be freaked out. And then you would do it. Well, see, that's the situation that we're actually in. Paul's asking you to employ your imagination and say, wait, I'm not just theoretically, but actually committed to Jesus as Lord. And if you're not, you ought to be. And that means, so whatever circumstance I find myself in, I have to say, Lord, how do I do what you've assigned to me? Because you've assigned me this. It'll change the way you see about being married or single. Let's say you're single. There's a great article that Paige Benton Brown now, who's married, was single and she wrote this, wrote called Singled Out for Good. She says that most singles don't live lives of quiet desperation, like Henry David Thoreau said, but most singles live lives of loud aggravation. And so she's wrestled with this, and you know what she says? She says, when some well-meaning matriarch, matronly lady in the church comes up to me and says, are you seeing anyone special? I always say, why yes, I see you, and you are special. Because she's trying to say, if I am where I am, it is not an accident, this is the Lord's assignment for me, so I've got to learn how to see things differently. You see, that's not how most of us do any of our circumstances. And just so you're comforted, if you're single, let me tell you a secret. This is a very, I'm just talking to single people here, married people, don't listen. There are a lot of married people that wish they were not. Okay, single people, hold on. Married people. There are a lot of single people that wish they were married. Do you see how nobody's content with what they've got? It's a perennial kind of restlessness. And you've got to learn to see whichever state you're in, whether you're sick or well, whether you're married or single, whether you work at a job that seems so deeply dissatisfying or one that seems so important. Consider the possibility that the Lord has assigned you that. And that you're... Your calling is to figure out, how do I lean into this as a person responsible to God who's serving Him in this place, at this time, in this way? You know what it'll do? It'll also raise your questions for you. You won't think of the world as your, as just something for you to get from. Professor Jones, who did the call to worship this morning, and I were talking about this, and he says, you know, it makes us want to cultivate and not consume. If you start to realize that there's significance to where you've been placed and that the Lord has assigned you to that place, then instead of going around the world thinking about, hey, I've got gifts. I've got gifts that I need to impose on the world. I've got gifts that I need to self-actualize. I need to self-actualize. Sorry. Note to video editor, uh, audio editors, cut that out before posting. We sometimes think of the world as a place for us to impose ourselves on, to get from it as much as we can. And what if you see yourself as being placed in a place because God loves it? Placed with certain people that God loves. And instead of constantly thinking about, oh, I'm not fulfilled. I'm not doing what I'm meant to do. I'm not employing my gifts as I wish I could. What about, I've been placed here on assignment. What do I know where I should be? 
that's got to at least enter your head sometimes. Some of you are young people and you're going to get a job and you're, you're going to come out of college and you're going to think that you're fully developed. You're not. You can't do anything yet. That's okay. You have gifts. You have abilities. You're smart. You're lovely and all that. But be willing to do some stuff that doesn't seem so good because the Lord has assigned you to it. The Lord has assigned you to your marriage. What if He wants you to cultivate something there? To love somebody who's not going to love you back. You're put there to cultivate things, not just to consume them. And lastly, this. Look, this is how John Calvin, he doesn't, he's not referring exactly to these verses, but it's almost like he's making a commentary on it. He says this, The Lord bids each one of us, in all of life's actions, to look to His calling, for he knows with what great restlessness human nature claims, and with what fickleness it is born hither and thither, which I think means here and there. And how its ambition longs to embrace various things at once. So here's his diagnosis. God knows this about you and me. He knows that we're perennial malcontents. He knows that we have an, an, an unending restlessness inside. It's, it's, it's like we're, we're, we're a human bonfire of restlessness. We're fickle. We don't know what we want. You ever had a baby just crying and crying, and no matter what way you satiate them, they're just angry about everything, sad about everything. And then you grew up and you realized you were the same way. You don't know sometimes. You're just mad at everybody. You just hate everything. You want, your ambition longs to embrace various things at once. You ever had that experience? Why it's so hard to make a decision? Because you want everything. You want to go in opposite directions at the same time, which is very difficult being in the one body and everything. And so he says, God knows this about us. He knows this about us. Therefore, Less through, and he said kind things, less through our stupidity and rashness, everything be turned topsy-turvy, he has appointed duties for every person in their particular way of life. And so that no one may thoughtlessly transgress their limits, he has named these various kinds of living callings. Therefore, each individual has his own kind of living assigned to him or her by the Lord as a sort of sentry post so that he may not heedlessly wander throughout his life. Calvin says that one of the greatest things about the circumstances you're in and the particular calling you've been given is it's a gift from the Lord, not only for the world that He loves, it's a gift for you. Because you're set free from the horrible tyranny of always having to wonder if you've missed your best life, if there's another life out there that's better, if there's a corner around which you haven't gotten to see yet, did I marry wrong? Did I did I take the wrong job? Did I go to the wrong school? Did I get everything all wrong? And the Bible never wants you to look at that that way. It wants to say, look where the Lord has assigned you. One of the dangerousest things that spiritual people can do is they can baptize their discontent. 
They think the Lord's constantly calling them to something new when really they're just awfully restless. When really they just hate where they are. What if God's kindness to you is to say, stay put there, young fella. Stay put there, old fella. Stay put there, young woman. Stay put there, older woman. Think of where you are as an assignment. This will protect you from yourself. Parker Palmer, and this is the last story, was a professor who had all his life wanted to be a college president. Well, an opportunity soon emerged for him to possibly be a college president, and being in the Quaker tradition as he was, he formed a clearness committee, which is a, a wise thing to do where you get a group of wise, spiritually mature people around you to help you discern what individual thing you should be doing. And the point of this committee was that they asked a lot of questions. And as they started asking him questions, they started asking him why he wanted to be a college president. What kinds of things does a college president do? What kinds of things does he love to do? And they're just trying to unearth something, uncover his desires, the circumstances, the situation. And at the end of it, one wise and perceptive person said, you know, it seems like that all the things about being a college president that you don't want to do. Why do you think you want to be a college president? And he said, it came to me that the only real thing I wanted about being a college president is I wanted to have my name with a comma and president written after it. I started to realize, oh, I just wanted to be in a book somewhere on a newspaper article that said Parker Palmer, comma, president, college president. And it helped him to start to realize, you know, my ambition can lead me in a horrible direction. And I could baptize that. We say, don't settle. We say, pick God's best. How do you know what God's best is? How about submit yourself to the life that God has given you? You might need a different assignment. Ask God for a different assignment. And then until He gives you one, Say, how do I embody this one? Because the God who before you were thinking of Him was arranging for the putting away of your sins and for the healing of the world on that Good Friday that we only call good because we know the rest of the story. He is not, as Paige Benton Brown said in that article, He's not going to be less good to you tomorrow than He was on that Friday. It's His way to be good. He demonstrated it by taking care of our sins. He demonstrates it by giving you a calling. He give, demonstrates it by giving you an assignment. And he's not up there secretly laughing as you endure a hard marriage saying, <laughs> as if you were a human comedy central that God is watching. He's not looking at your life and the job that you do and just laughing because he thinks it's so funny to watch you exercise futility in your job. He's assigned you there because he's good. Now for you to say, Lord, how do I live as a servant, responsible to you, protected from myself, for the good of this world that you love? Is it possible you want me to stay put?